Es spricht der Führer. Als unsere Partei gerade sieben an Hofer sprach sie schon zwei Grundsätze aus. Erstens, sie wollte eine wahrhaftige Weltanschauungspartei sein. Zweitens, sie wollte der kompromisslos die einzige Macht und alleinige Macht in Deutschland. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Third Reich History Podcast. In our time together, Ryan and I uh, have gone through uh, some of the darker institutions of the Third Reich, but there's one that you know has, has come up peripherally many times, but we still haven't managed to, to take on directly, and that's the concentration camp system. We're going to begin today a ongoing series on the concentration camp system. Uh, and these camps can be something of a slippery fish. Uh, they've gone through many different phases. They were not static institutions by any means, but they were ever-changing, serving uh, different functions in different places. Uh, so our goal today is to lay out the broader contours of what the concentration camp system was. Uh, and then we will take you all through each of these different phases of the camps. Yeah, by 1945, the camp system was large and varied and, and easy to confuse. And that's often what ends up happening in the popular conception of the concentration camps because the system was so multifaceted and had so many different roles that it fulfilled both within the system of social control, within the war economy, that there were camps that were not part of the concentration camp system. It's all very easy to confuse the different parts of this larger institution and begin to conflate the different experiences and different functions of different parts of it. So hopefully we can bring more clarity than confusion in, in <laughs> trying to highlight some of those differences. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that the, it, we, we've talked about this before, the, the capital of the Holocaust, the monument to Nazi brutality, was a part of this concentration camp system. It, it was Auschwitz, the mm -hmm. platonic ideal of what a camp was, what unrestrained Nazi terror and brutality could be. Very striking stories and experiences about the selections of prisoners for the gas chambers upon arrival the crematoria where the bodies were burned, the attached factories where there was forced labor. So Auschwitz brought together many of the different functions that occurred within the concentration camp system, but it was also an, an outlier in many ways. Yeah, that, that's kind of what made it unique was that it brought all these, these things together, that all of these different forms of horror occurred in the same place. But... It certainly wasn't the, the only concentration camp. It wasn't the only extermination camp. It points us to what was going on in other places in the Reich. But we have to go further if you really want to understand the concentration camp system as a whole. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, Auschwitz is very much the exception rather than the rule in how 
different parts of the system are, are ordered and function. Mm -hmm. Some of them are much more horrific and some of them, well, repressive and awful are nowhere near what, what happened in the extermination camps, at least until very, very late in the war. The concentration camp administration system is a separate set of camps from a whole variety of camps that exist in the Third Reich. So Auschwitz stands out as this symbol for the larger concentration camp system. But when we take a closer look at things, we see that there are in fact different types of camps underneath the concentration camp administration. So the first thing to understand is that there were many different types of camps in Germany, but the concentration camp administration was a separate distinct entity that dealt with its own set of camps within that. You, know, you have POW camps, you have labor camps, you have work education camps. The experience for a prisoner in the work education camps could be very similar to what you might experience in a concentration camp, but the, they were run by the, the Gestapo and there was a, a definite end date to your detention. And they grew out of the concentration camp administration, which was separate and distinct. So within that camp administration, there were three types that emerged with different functions and changing functions within their specific roles over time. So even within the concentration camp system, which was under the administration of the economics and administration main office, there were different camps that had different functions and those functions did change across time. Broadly conceived, we can see three different kinds of concentration camps. There were the extermination camps, which functioned within the context of the Holocaust, where primarily Jews were brought into the camp, killed on the day that they arrived, and there was no effort to keep prisoners or use prison labor or anything like that. Then there were the concentration camps, where political and social outsiders uh, were housed and often used for labor. And then there were these hybrid camps, places like Auschwitz or Majdanek, that straddled between the two functions, that there was quite a deal of extermination that took place in these camps, but they were also sites for long-term holding of people and exploitation of their labor. Geographically, extermination and hybrid camps were situated in the occupied territories in the East. Concentration camps, where you were looking more at political outsiders or social outsiders, were located within Germany. So there was a very clear divide in different rules that applied in the empire and in the Old Reich, which is Germany. Administratively, things were a bit more complex. Now, there, there were these different functions for the camps, extermination, concentration, and the, the hybrid camp. But there were also different types of camps aiming at these functions. So there were the main camps. These are the cities of the concentration camp universe, the administrative centers that directed the movement of prisoners through the system and into other camp types. They were also the centers of punishment. And as the camp system progressed, uh, different main camps developed 
specialized functions as well. So for example, yeah, you have a camp like Ravensbrück, which became the concentration camp for women. Or you had Mauthausen, which was the place where extrajudicial killings began taking place in the Reich. So each of these main camps develops its own character. The main camps also were distributed geographically. So each region could have its own, its own camp, its own central hub of the network in that region. Outside of the main camps, there was also the development of a network of subcamps. These were the, the tendrils of the network that went out into German society. And they, they varied in size and function, but could be very small. Sometimes a, a subcamp uh, was just a, a few people in the basement of a building that were being used for a, a particular task. And that's a, a characteristic feature of the subcamps, that they were usually geared towards labor, towards using the prisoners for a purpose. And the subcamps, as the, the name subcamp suggests, were subordinate to one of these main camps. They were attached to the main camp, would get their prisoners from the main camp. Prisoners who had been worked to near exhaustion would be sent back to the main camp. Uh, and these subcamps were also often attached to a particular business where the prisoners would be working. Then the, the, finally, there are the transit camps. So the, the clearing houses, the sites for movements across the network from one main camp to another or from one subcamp to another, and oftentimes for movement of people uh, from the, the Western camps into the extermination camps in the East. Now, all of this did not spring up overnight, nor did it remain the same. This system grew over time and developed different functions for different parts of it as new needs were found as, as Germany went to war and expanded into occupied territories, the camp system took on new roles. Ultimately, the one that we're most familiar with or that the public is generally most familiar with is that of the Holocaust. But things started very differently. There are distinct phases that you can follow in the development of the concentration camp system where you can see these different types of camps emerge and take on a new role from the earlier experience or the earlier examples set by uh, what had come before and uh, as they expand into new areas, take on new functions. So what were these phases and what were the primary functions of the different parts of the concentration camp system at each time? I think that we can break it down into about six phases, although you know, these things it's hard to draw hard borders here. These, these things flow into each other. Right? You had, had the, the early phase as the camps are developing, kind of a lull uh, as they settle into uh, German society in the years before the war. The, the early war camps were the, the camps transition uh, into uh, fulfilling you know, a, a function for uh, the war and for dealing with enemies during the war. Uh, the destruction period as the Holocaust emerges within the concentration camp system, and then the final rapid expansion uh, through 1944 and collapse in the end phase. So let's go, let's go through these. Uh, the the early camps. What what are our temporal boundaries for the early camps, and and what happened early on in the system? Well, 
this early phase from 1933 to 1934 is really one of transition. The camps start popping up at local levels and follow different administrative arrangements with, with other authorities in the area. And the primary target at this time is very much communists and other prominent leftists. The function outwardly, at least, as it is presented to the German public at this time, is one of reform through harsh temporary detention. So there is this sense that communists are somehow work shy or uh, degenerate following a degenerate foreign ideology because they because they have lost touch with german values and so uh, if you put all of them into a camp on the one hand you will be able to make sure that there is not a communist revolution which is a fear after the nazis come to power in 1933 and then on the other hand you will supposedly be able to rehabilitate them through these short sharp shocks of hard labor that will reintroduce them to good hard work and german values yeah yeah they'll emerge from the camps uh, reborn into the german volk having abandoned their communist beliefs and and seen the light of the leader mm -hmm. or or so the propaganda line goes it's not entirely cynical right that that is the objective. The, the goal is, is to build a Volk, bring it together. Well, that's what's so interesting about the early period, though, is that it is, it is so in flux that as a formal approach develops, it certainly takes this other direction and intent to pursue reform. But it, 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 is, very, uh, it is very ad hoc early on and mm -hmm. much more heavily reliant on terror and repression and sending a message more than anything else in both conception and uh and and practice and it does send that message that, that by the end of this early camp phase communism is crushed in germany mm -hmm. and with the the final victory in uh, the the civil war that had been going on in germany through the weimar period do you have an, another transformation in, in the concentration camp systems and a move into a new phase? Himmler changed the function and target of the concentration camp system at this point with Hitler's blessing in order to justify its continued existence. Be, because by, by 1935, the, the camps are Himmler's. Yes. They have been consolidated under the SS and the camp system is a way that a very ambitious Himmler can expand his own power, but he's got to justify it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, he spent this early period gathering all the strands of policing and responsibility for the concentration camp system into his hands. And then in 1935, once the communists are gone, he finds that all of a sudden the reason for this institution that affords him an immense amount of power is gone. So instead of letting it wither on the vine and fade away, the shift moves from communism to socially marginalized groups. Now, the population of political prisoners within the camp system declines remarkably at this time, and the largest population instead becomes criminals with directed campaigns over the course of the 1930s against other socially marginalized groups, such as homosexuals, Sinti, Roma, alcoholics, the homeless, prostitutes, just sort of this move against all of the groups that 
the regime has identified as social outsiders. Yeah, yeah, the, the people that they, they see as kind of the, the dark underbelly of German society with the goal of making the experience for, for the regular German be one where you can go to the train station and not have someone ask you for money. So throughout this period of, of roughly 1935 to 1938, the population remained pretty low and incarceration was still temporary, but the camps are seen more and more as dumping grounds for this segment of the population that can't necessarily be reformed and then be reborn as productive members of the people's community. But at the end of this period, it all culminates in Kristallnacht, when tens of thousands of Jews are rounded up during this pogrom and put into the concentration camps, spiking the population and indicating what its function might be in the future. And the fluctuations in the camp population during these first two periods are quite remarkable. You go from nearly 20,000 people at a time in the concentration camp system in the first months of the regime, all the way down to 2,000 or so by the time that Himmler begins to exert more influence in 1934. Then, as Chris says, by 1938, the numbers have almost completely rebounded. What's interesting, though, is that although detention in the camps at this time entails horrible abuse and, and suffering, and all of the psychological consequences of not knowing what your fate will be and not knowing if you'll ever be released, detention is nevertheless temporary. There is a high turnover rate, and most of the people who are sent to a concentration camp are sent there for in terms of three months that are then reviewed with most people being released after a relatively short incredibly harsh shock. Yeah, I think that's important to appreciate too, because when, when you think about it, a, a population of, of 2,000 or, or even 10,000, that's a lot of people. But in a national population of 80 million, it's, that's not a huge, huge proportion. But people are moving in and out. So it, they can touch a larger cross-section of German society than the, the population numbers might suggest. Mm -hmm. It's it's something. It's in six figures, uh, somewhere between one hundred and two hundred thousand people, I believe, in Prussia who go through the camp system in nineteen thirty three, and uh, by summer nineteen thirty three, and that's then where you start to see the turnaround. But like you say, because the turnover rate is so high, the message is being sent to the groups that the Nazis want to send that message to of what the consequences will be for resistance. Now, things change after the war begins. Well, things, things start to change even before the actual fighting begins because, of course, Germany is beginning its expansion before it's having to actually use force, just through, through the threats of force. As Germany acquires new territory, it has a need for new camps. So following the, the, the Anschluss, the, the annexation of Austria, uh, a new camp is built in Austria. As you point out, with the beginning of the war, uh, this process is just going to accelerate. The system is exported into the territories that are occupied and annexed. Yeah, the war sort of unleashes these major changes, and you begin to see the splits between 
how the concentration camps function within Germany and the new roles that they begin to take on outside of Germany. The other major change in 1939 is that the camps become a site of extrajudicial killing. Now, those numbers remain extremely limited within Germany for the time being, but it establishes the, a new function in the role of the concentration camp that previously, while prisoners did die of, of malnutrition, mistreatment, torture, these things, uh, it wasn't a place where you could go and just kill somebody outside of the legal system. That, in theory, was not supposed to happen, although in practice, it often did. Um, there were actually cases in the early 30s directed against members of the SA and SS who had been found responsible for beating prisoners to death. And after 1939, all of a sudden, this extra, this official function as a site of execution becomes part of what the concentration camps are. Yeah, although even into 1939, 1940, there's a recognition of the importance of legal justification, that executions are still listed as things like shot while attempting to escape, heart attack, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So even though uh, you have extrajudicial killings ordered and organized, people are sent to the concentration camps for the express purpose of their murder, it's still not open. Mm-hmm. It's hidden from view, yeah. That even though you know between 1939 and 1941, the war has begun and war production is becoming more and more important. I mean, the German workers are, are sent off to the front. The camps are still not used for war industry. That labor, which has been seen as a tool for reforming people in the past or for, for punishing people in the past, still kind of retains that justification, that it's not, it's not supposed to contribute to the war effort. That the most important industry if you can even call it that, attached to the camps is the uh, German earth and stone works where you have, have prisoners going going to quarries, uh, digging up large chunks of stone uh, for construction, but they're not in the factories. Slave labor is not an integral part of the concentration camp system yet. This begins to change from 1942 to 1943, where we enter a period of destruction in the East and production in the West. Now, in the East, the Wannsee Conference lays out policy for the final solution, and the Holocaust begins. This is where we begin to see extermination camps like Treblinka, which are created to wipe out entire Jewish populations. People are sent there with the explicit purpose of killing them. There is no intent to use them for labor. Everyone who goes into an extermination camp dies. Hybrid camps, such as Majdanek and Auschwitz, also begin to take on a central role in the extermination through labor scheme. The thing about the hybrid camps is that these were camps that existed before the Wannsee Conference and the beginning of the Holocaust that start to take on this role of extermination, uh, whereas the, the outright extermination camps were purpose-built for the destruction of the European Jews. In the West, though, labor becomes more and more a paramount purpose of the camps. There was an agreement uh, in September of 1942, which allowed 
concentration camp prisoners to be taken out of the camps and taken to businesses to do war work. And the subcamp system began to emerge in the West as a consequence of this. As concentration camp labor was attached to existing factories, new little subcamps, and not sometimes not so little, sometimes you know, four thousand people or so can be in these these subcamps, bring the camps out into the German public sphere. And the purpose of labor within the camps begins to be production, contributing to the war effort, rather than some notion of reform through labor or punishment through labor. And also, concentration camp prisoners start to show up, uh, not just in the factories, but also on the streets uh, as the the strategic bombing campaign against Germany ramps up. Uh, Prisoners are sent out to clean up the cities, to clear rubble. Uh, So a a regular German going about their life would have a more direct experience with the concentration camp system than had been the case before. Now, in 1944, the population of the camps expands rapidly, almost doubling. Yeah, so the camps had been one of Himmler's tools for exercising power really from from the beginning of when uh, the SS consolidated control over them. In 1944, Himmler was really looking to uh, ramp up his control, ramp up his role, uh, particularly after uh, July 20th of 1944, the assassination attempt uh, on on Hitler. But but even before that, uh, in the the spring of 1944, uh, the camps are bringing in like 30 to 40,000 people every month. And they're becoming integral to German industry. During the first half of 1944, the population of the camps expand from uh, 315,000 uh, to 524,000 uh, by August of 1944. And also the, the demographic makeup of the camps, even inside Germany, changes significantly. By mid-1944, the population is overwhelmingly foreign instead of German, and a large number of Jews who had previously been almost exclusively annihilated by being sent to the extermination camps are actually sent west. Like 115,000 Hungarian Jews were sent west into Germany to work within the concentration camp system in uh, German war industry. Now we move on to our favorite subject on this podcast, the end phase, where once again, we have this final set of transformations before the collapse. Yeah, the, the population explosion continued right through, through the end phase. And we were talking about a little bit over 500,000 in August of 1944. By January of 1945, it's more like 750,000. So another, another 50% increase in the population over the course of four months. This is exponential growth. And the driver of this growth is still the acquisition of foreigners, but also mass arrests in order to maintain order in the country, the fear, fear of an uprising of, of the uh, foreign slaves that are toiling across Germany, and also of a, a possible uh, reaction uh, from uh, the German population. 
Uh, not to mention, uh, as the Soviets pressed in on Germany from the east, uh, camps started to be evacuated. And those prisoners, <laughs> they weren't going to be released. They had to be put somewhere. So uh, the main camps take on more and more of, of the burden as the eastern camps are evacuated, as the subcamps are evacuated, and the concentration camp prisoners are really very much concentrated into the main camps. So with this sort of 20,000 foot overview of what's going on, we do have some statistics for you from Nicholas Boxman's book, uh, Ka'el, A History of the Concentration Camps. Now, as I said, Broshat puts the numbers in 1933 uh, as fluctuating around 20,000 at any given time until the summer of 1933. Uh, Voxman puts that dropping all the way to 2,400 by October of 1934, after the concentration camp system had been significantly formalized and just as Himmler was beginning to take over and establish the concentration camp as a permanent institution. Now, by summer uh, through 1935 and 1937, numbers tripled to about 7,700 by, uh, by the end of 1937, but really took the jump in summer of 1938 when they went from 7,000 to 24,000. Now, uh, the, by, immediately prior to the beginning of the war, uh, numbers had spiked around Kristallnacht and then remained around the same number. But as time went on, you start to see this almost exponential growth in, in the number of concentration camp prisoners. Uh, December of 1940, it was up to 53,000. By September of 1942, it had doubled to 110,000. Now, this remained steady through the fall of that year, but by next year, it had doubled again in August of 1943 to 224,000. And then, as Chris has said, reached 524,000 by fall 1944, and jumped all the way to 714,000 by January 15th. So you, it, it is an interesting sort of initial advance and then retreat of the system, uh, of the terror system that then really kicks into gear in, in these final months of the war, uh, at least within Germany. The, the Holocaust being an entirely separate set of dynamics that are playing out in the East, affecting the Jewish populations of Europe. Uh, and it all came to an end with uh, liberation of these camps. And you know, I'm, I'm sure that many of our listeners have seen the footage of these camps uh, as the Allies uh, rolled in uh, bulldozers pushing bodies into to mass graves, trains full of emaciated corpses and walking skeletons mm -hmm. and this this is a very powerful image of the concentration camps it's something that has stuck with the world but it was a unique moment in the system and it was different from what had come before and in order to really appreciate what happened in the concentration camps you, you have to understand that, that they, they were dynamic institutions that were changing through all of these different phases. So with this overview in mind, in the coming weeks, 
what we're going to be doing is getting into each of these phases and the dynamics and developments of the concentration camp system and the different parts of the concentration camp system are over the course of its development. Today, we're going to begin with that first phase, the early concentration camp system. The concentration camps all began with a fire. Yes, the Reichstag fire after the election of the Nazis into power and the appointment of Hitler as chancellor. So we're, we're talking about not even two months into Hitler's tenure as a chancellor of Germany. And the terror had not really begun. That This was the moment that the new regime could point to to justify what it was about to unleash. So it, what, what was the, the Reichstag fire and, and what grew out of it? Well, tensions had been high in Germany since Hitler had been appointed chancellor by Hindenburg in January and called for a new set of elections to cement his legitimacy. The SA and the SS had been holding torchlight parades to celebrate his appointment, and a wave of attacks on leftist organizations had begun. Now, Hitler had encouraged this violence with vows to never sort of, to quote, never stray from stamping out Marxists and threatening, quote, anyone who sins against the nation. But the elections scheduled for March 5th really raised fears that the communists were going to stage their own show of force to galvanize voters. So this was the atmosphere in which the parliament building of Germany was set on fire and burned to the ground. There's some debate as to the agent of this fire, who exactly <laughs> the, the arsonist or arsonists right. were. Uh, but that's that's for our purposes, uh, neither here nor there. Uh, the Reichstag was set afire, and this was seen as an attack by communists. That this this was the the first shot of the counter revolution by the communists. Parliamentary officials had actually caught a lone Dutch communist, Marinus van der Lubbe, running through the halls of the Reichstag, trying to set smaller fires, and. When interrogated by police, he immediately claimed responsibility for this quote-unquote protest. He'd actually been implicated in earlier failed attempts to burn down the Berlin City Hall, the old royal palace, and even a welfare office in the district of Neukölln. So in this larger atmosphere, fearing some type of symbolic uprising or act of violence by the communists, it appeared that this was going to be the signal for the general uprising, or at least this is how the Nazis present it to the public. There's actually a passage in the memoirs of Rudolf Diels, which one must treat with some skepticism, given that he was the first head of the Gestapo and uh, writing in the 1950s, in large part to try and excuse his involvement with the regime in its early days. But uh, it, it, is, it is a remarkable passage and worth quoting at length here. He had been at a cafe on Unter den Linden when calls of fire actually came up from, came up the street. The, the parliament buildings are, are right at the end of Unter den Linden by the Brandenburg Gate. So when he arrived on the scene, uh, he had 
interrogated van der Lobe or asked questions of the officers who had uh, posed the initial questioning. And uh, over the course of the night, other leading Nazis started to filter in. Now, when he was summoned to give his report about what had been discovered, uh, he describes what the scene as follows. So Hitler and his faithful gathered on a balcony overlooking the main chamber. Hitler had propped himself up with both arms on the stone parapet of the balcony and stared silently into the red sea of flames. As I entered, Goering approached me. His voice carried the fateful pathos of the dramatic hour. This is the beginning of the communist uprising. They're going to strike now. There's no time to lose. Goering could not continue. Hitler turned to the gathering. Now I saw that his face was fiery red from excitement and the heat gathering in the dome. He shouted as if he wanted to burst in an uncontrolled way I had never before experienced with him. There will be no pity now. Whoever stands in our way will be slaughtered. The German people will have no understanding for leniency. Every communist functionary will be shot where he is found. The communist deputies must be hung this very night. Everybody who is in league with the communists is to be arrested. There will be no more mercy for the Social Democrats or the Reichsbanner. I told him about the results of the first interrogation of Marinus van der Lubbe, that, in my opinion, the matter concerned a madman. But Hitler was the wrong one to tell this. He mocked my childish credulity. This is a very clever, long-planned thing. These criminals have thought about this for a long time, but they've miscalculated, haven't they, my comrades? These subhumans obviously don't grasp that the people are on our side. In their mouse holes that they now want to come out of, they obviously don't hear the rejoicing of the masses. And so it went on. I asked Goering to step aside, but he did not let me speak. Highest alert for the police, ruthless use of firearms, and everything else that goes with a military alert in such a case. So that night, the Minister of the Interior, Frick, actually went on to a number of meetings to organize some response to the fire. Now, they drew upon an earlier plan that had been drafted in case of a general strike and attempted overthrow of the government that had been on file already. And in an all-night session, hammered out a decree of the Reich president for the protection of people and state. The draft decree was presented the next morning and passed, suspending the constitution and authorizing extended police powers to, quote, prevent communist acts of violence endangering the state. Now, the decree for protection of people and state laid the foundation of everything that the Nazis did subsequent to the 28th of February, 1933. By suspending the constitution, along with the rights of privacy, rights of habeas corpus, freedom of speech, freedom of association, uh, protection against warrantless search and seizure, and most importantly, giving a mandate to intervene regardless of the law to prevent communist acts of violence, all of the necessary legal requirements for an extrajudicial system of policing was in place. With this justification in hand, with this, this legal veneer, the police, but also the SA and the SS, went about fulfilling you know, Hitler's desire of violently suppressing communists and leftists in Germany. Members of party organizations, the SA and the SS, were recruited as auxiliary police. They were deputized and given the power to go out into the street and uh, arrest these people that, in many cases, uh, they had been fighting against in the streets uh, for a very long time. So they knew where 
the communist meeting places were, and they went out and started beating up communists and rounding them up under the justification of this decree for the protection of people and state. They actually had been given official status as uh, as auxiliary policemen underneath an order from Goering that month. So you saw a major transition of responsibilities for policing into the hands of paramilitary party organization who would work alongside or in cooperation with existing police. And what they called this process of rounding up communists who hadn't actually done anything at that moment was protective custody, that the people arrested in this period were going to be taken into protected custody to protect them against attacks by an enraged German public and to uh, protect the state from them. The concept of protective custody predated Nazism. Uh, the original meaning in the Kaiserreich was, as Chris pointed out, this idea of protecting an individual from lynch mobs. Now, over the course of the First World War, protection began to refer to protecting the state against some type of labor unrest that could endanger the war effort. And the police were given the power to preventatively detain somebody who had not yet committed a crime during any locally declared state of emergency. And during the upheaval of the Weimar period, this started to refer to both arrests intended to suppress communists or separatists during locally declared states of emergency, as well as court-sanctioned police detention to uphold law and order. So until 1933, this remained regulated under the terms of the Prussian police administration law. But after the decree for the protection of people in a state suspended the constitution, in an indefinite state of emergency with no guaranteed rights as a citizen, anyone in this case from the paramilitary party organizations empowered as an auxiliary policeman could detain anybody so long as they stated that the grounds were for preventing communist acts of violence. So th this was the climate from which the concentration camp system would emerge. An emergency uh, signaled by the Reichstag fire results in the suspension of the Constitution, the expansion of the power of the SA and the SS uh, as auxiliary police officers, and the use of a justification to put people in prison who had not committed a crime, protective custody. But if you're going to do this, if you're going to move against the communists, bring them into protective custody, you need a place to detain them. So, Chris, what are wild camps? Wild camps. All right. So, historians have, have looked at this as a free-for-all period where the SA and the SS are more or less independently establishing camps, what they wouldn't call concentration camps yet, but places to put these communists that they've arrested. The idea of the wild camp is that it's it's decentralized. There's no accountability and uh, improvised on a local level. This may not be quite the right way to look at it because the little camps that emerge are very quickly developing associations with the police if they didn't exist already. And the, the formal elements of the system quickly expand and 
the existing institutions cooperate with these new little camps that are being established by the SA and the SS. At first, though, you really are dealing with ad hoc arrangements that were it not for these two laws or the directives and the decree that we discussed would be uh, would count as um, what's kidnapping, involuntary detention. Anyway, regardless, uh, <laughs> people are being held, as Chris said, in beer halls. It's very common that these paramilitary groups will occupy, say, a burned out factory or a derelict building and just keep people in on he- in, in the open air, um, in a basement, in locked in the back room of a bar, somewhere where they can control their movement. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think kidnapping is a good word for this because of where a lot of these detention facilities, if you can call them that, are established. SA pubs. These were the places where these guys had been hanging out for years and they just went out and grabbed the guys that they had been fighting against and brought them back to their local haunt and locked them up in the back room in SA pubs or these SA homes for uh, unemployed uh, SA men, abandoned factories, all of uh, these spaces that they already knew and they already occupied became the early wild camps. You have to understand that, as Chris said as well, the, just how embedded the social relations and tensions that were occurring between the SA and the communists, particularly, that were the personal scores that were being settled in, in these mm-hmm. detentions. I, I mean, the the SA, the, the brown shirts, the stormtroopers, were the working class paramilitary wing of the party. These were the beer hall bruisers and the street fighters who had engaged in all of the political violence with uh, their communist counterparts in the late Weimar period. So the thing is that because these guys were coming from the same social milieu, you might be in a neighborhood that was mostly communist, that swung communist or swung social democrat or swung Nazi, but you would be in the same workplaces. You would know who the union organizers were. You would know where the communist bar that you didn't go to that part of town at night unless you were looking to get into a fist fight was. You would know which of your neighbors paid their dues or associated with other Bolsheviks. You, there was this element of, we're not, we're not really dealing with what happens in Rwanda at this point, but this idea of an embedded communal element to the political violence that is occurring. This is not something where these are strangers to each other in its earliest stages these are people who are known to each other through the community, settling political scores. Yeah, and that's part of the justification of bringing in the, the SS and the SA to begin with, that they have a, a deeper understanding of how communism functions in, in their community than the police do. Now, the formalization. Formalization is important at this point. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, these these SA pubs and whatnot were not the only place that people put into protective custody were held. Uh, they were also put in established existing prisons and workhouses. So these, these two 
locales of confinement are developing together. But the experience in the, the wild concentration camps versus the prisons was very much different. People in protective custody in the prisons and workhouses were not expected to work. Uh, they weren't beaten. They got sufficient food and on the whole were treated like a prisoner of the state rather than as an enemy of the state. There are some remarkable stories that you can find uh, in post-war court cases about people's experiences at this time. Um, if uh, so, one of one of the cases that I was looking at that uh, was lodging complaints for um, mistreatment, because oftentimes the Gestapo would be the ones conducting interrogations, trying to you know tell us where your secret press is, tell us who your couriers are, tell us who are the other members who's the local leader, right? The the SA would be the ones conducting the detentions and nabbing the people that they knew were party members and then holding them while the Gestapo would be working through and, and looking uh, looking for information. So this story comes from one of these cases where this guy was being processed through this whole mess of a mixture of state authorities and party paramilitary organizations in his interactions with the state. So there's a great picture on the cover of uh, the Gestapo was not alone. Uh, there's a there's a great picture on the cover of uh, Wagner's uh, the Gestapo was not alone. The Gestapo war nicht alleine that shows uh, a policeman and a couple of SA men and I think a third organization that is a state authority arresting somebody who is Jewish. And this guy's story was that he had been in his apartment when a group of SA men or a group of SS men with a police officer appeared and grabbed him in his apartment and then took him to downtown Dusseldorf or downtown Duisburg. Sorry. He was uh, being brought into the city hall there and they arrived at the plaza in front of it and there was a group of about 20 or 30 SA men who then proceeded to surround him and beat him. They knocked him unconscious and he was laying on the cobblestones bleeding and he says that when he became conscious, the story that the police officer told him was that after he had been knocked out, one of the stormtroopers emerged from the crowd and pulled out a pistol to execute him. It was only at that point when the police officer, who also knew the communist who had been had been detained and had showed up because he knew him personally from his neighborhood, arrived at the scene and found this un this unfolding and proceeded to take charge of the situation and move the wounded man to a police prison. I, I don't have any information on who this man was or what his relationship was or, or whether just the statement that he gave to the state prosecutor, this being information incidental to the later investigation when he was then subsequently beaten again as part of his interrogations after the Gestapo took custody of him from the policeman who rescued him from the stormtroopers. But just how confused all the different organizations involved in this early stage and who had authority and who could exert authority over policing. The, the Rhineland is also a special example because the police president for the government district was also a member of the SS. So there was a particularly radical 
uh, overlap between paramilitary involvement in poli- in auxiliary policing and policing uh, that were merged in 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 a single person, uh, Police President Vital. But uh, it's uh, it, it does give you a sort of image of what's going on at the ground at this time. I think it points to the the permeability of the boundaries between these different authorities as well, that you can be transferred from one of the police prisons into one of the so-called wild camps and back, and you're still a, a prisoner under the same justification, but your your treatment can be so radically different uh, from one place to another. Uh, and, it, and it points to the cooperation and coordination between these different agencies and authorities. So in Bavaria, there is a famous quote from a Bavarian stormtroop group leader who sort of neatly summarizes this very confused situation. Quote, everyone is arresting everybody, bypassing the prescribed official procedure. Everyone threatens everybody with protective custody. (laughs) So record keeping uh, suffered a bit at this time. It's hard to keep track of what was happening to who, but uh, it's definitely as a result of this chaos in many ways that uh, formalization processes begin to emerge. Uh, but it's going to take a long time t- before you know, practice in the camps uh, is uniform. Early on, uh, while in the police prisons, life was at least bearable. Uh, in the, the SA and the SS camps, violence was a central part of the experience. And, and particularly a violent introduction or welcome to the camp. That when you arrived you were beaten. And then this was an attempt to break down the prisoners, impress upon them what situation they were in and show them that, uh, that they were worthless uh, and that they no longer could count on the protection of the law. It's curious that it was the SA and the SS guards that behaved in this way because they were selected more or less at random Almost, almost drafted into a role as a camp guard. But these guys were self-selected to some extent. They, they had been involved in the struggle during Weimar. They had been primed for violence through the street fighting. And they took that mentality into the early camps and approached it almost as an extension of the violence of Weimar political culture, that this was the final victory, that they had they had defeated the communists, and now they are going to seal that victory with the same kind of violence that, that they'd been using for a very long time and mark the end of the struggle. Even as prisoners begin to be moved out of these impromptu detention areas or toward actual concentration camps that begin to emerge, the SA and the SS remain as guards. So as there's an interesting formalization here that courts begin to become involved in sending people to concentration camps or putting them in protective custody. Police begin to become involved in putting people in protective custody. uh, The political figures, political uh, officials begin to issue orders to take certain people into protective custody. 
And so what ends up happening is the site of detention begins to become more centralized, but the organizations responsible for overseeing it remain the same. Well, it, but there's also some some conflict between organizations that's that's playing out as the the camps are are centralizing. Uh, so in early July of, of 33, Hitler said the revolution's over, and that kind of drew a close to this first phase of repression within the early camps. And from there, the little pub camps start to disappear, and everything's settling into larger state camps. But at this point, there's still not one agency that is responsible for the camps. You still have the police uh, fulfilling uh, a guard role in some places, uh, and it's being negotiated who's going to be in, in control of life within the camps. And there, there's two model camps uh, early on in the system uh, where this tension played out. Uh, in Bavaria, you have Dachau, and in Prussia, there was the Emsland camp system. And Prussia was the, the first place where the SS really got a shot at, at running the, the whole the whole shebang. Uh, it was the Emsland camps were the first ones that turned over all of the staffing duties to the SS. So they would have complete uh, authority there. And Emsland also stood out because it was a purpose-built camp. It was not an, an old warehouse or factory that uh, was repurposed as a concentration camp. It was built from the ground up using prisoner labor in order to house a, a large number of people that were in uh, protective custody. So forced labor as a means of re-educating these communists so that they could be reintroduced into German society again first emerged here in Emsland. But because the SS had gained full authority within that camp complex and because they were very violent, people started to notice uh, how brutal things were within the camps. And uh, in Prussia, there was a, a backlash against it. And Goering actually decided to step in and break the power of the SS in Emsland, more or less laying siege to the camp, like surrounding the camp. And the SS guards like took up weapons. And they even talked about arming the prisoners and trying to get the prisoners to join in with them uh, in an uprising against this, this coup against their control of the camp. I mean, ultimately, uh, they, they gave up uh, and came out. And the camp was turned over to the SA, who didn't really behave much differently than the SS had uh, in the first place. And, and ultimately, as, as a result of this uh, controversy uh, and pushback, the Emsland camps would be shut down uh, one by one. Uh, but this is a, just a, a microcosm of the interagency competition that's playing out within the camps early on. And it's high stakes. Who's going to have control of these things, of these ultimate instruments of uh, repression? Before we look at Dachau as a model, because I think that's sort of the point where we get the transition 
where we begin to see the system take shape as a system within the hands of the SS, which is what it ultimately becomes, it's, it's worth looking at this backlash to the lawless state within the camps. The stories of the atrocities of what was happening to prisoners began leaking out. Obviously, as people are having a high turnover rate, you can only threaten them so much. They're going to talk about what they saw. They're going to talk about what they've seen when you begin to have cycled hundreds of thousands of people through these places. So the thing is that as these stories start to spread, the idea of the camps and the justification of protective custody was that the Nazis were going to prevent violence. They were going to prevent an communist overthrow. They were going to restore order. And instead, what had happened is that the most radical parts of the movement were instead engaging in this totally lawless violence. So over the course of summer 1933. This is where you begin to see also that with the power that the camps and the auxiliary policing role has afforded the SS and the SA, they begin to take, uh, I'm not sure what the right word here is, the respectable parts of society. By that, I mean the parts of society that the middle class would look upon as part of their own rather than a potential threat. So civil servants or lawyers, other white collar workers and representatives of the state who are seen as part of law and order rather than part of this communist threat to the future of Germany. When these groups begin to be taken into protective custody for uh, filing lawsuits f uh, over mistreatment and torture or uh, inquiring too closely about what the conditions are in particular camps or uh, filing charges against the people who, um, you know, have actually killed people in the camps. That's when there begins to be a real uh, a backlash with the political will to do something about the camps. The Nazis cannot risk their legitimacy with the population over these abuses. So at this point in the summer, as Chris said, uh, Hitler on the one hand declares that the revolution is over. On the other hand, uh, Goering in Prussia begins to become worried about the fact that all of this power may be slipping out of the hands of the state and it's time to rein things in. So you get this standoff at the Emsland camp. As a part of a larger shift beginning at this time, Concentration camps under the administration of paramilitary organizations are shut down one by one, and prisoner populations are moved into larger state institutions that then themselves begin to lower prisoner numbers. This is where we go from this high point of 20,000 prisoners at any given point in the system and begin to shrink down to one-tenth of that number by a year later uh, in, in late summer of 1934. Goering cooperates with the Minister of the Interior Frick in this process, but they face some pushback from Himmler, who wants to become the man in charge of this system. And he's selling himself with his model camp at Dachau. Yeah, so Himmler was uh, operating out of Bavaria. Dachau had some problems of its own, I mean, actually very, very similar problems, that uh, it was run by uh, an SS guard, 
and they were terribly violent and brutal and had actually uh, murdered four prisoners early on after taking control to you know show their their dominance in the camp Jews in particular were, were targets within uh, Dachau early on uh, as they would be throughout the Third Reich but uh, even though they tried to cover up these murders by saying that uh, the prisoners were shot while trying to escape uh, one of them survived for a time and and told a story and uh, the the cover was pretty flimsy so uh, the state prosecutor got wind of the murders and started to make a fuss about it and because of this the commandant of Dachau uh, would be uh, sacrificed in the name of keeping the institution going and would be replaced uh, by Theodor Eike who if if anyone is responsible for forming the concentration camp system uh, it is Theodor Eike uh, he would overhaul Dachau uh, and turn it into uh, the the model camp uh, for the rest of the system. So what was interesting about Ica at Dachau was the way that he instituted a strict set of rules, quote unquote, uh, that gave the outward image of process and fairness and regulation over all of the abuses that were happening under his auspices. So he was particularly famous for instituting these these camp regulations that had a standard set of uh, expectations and punishments for violations of every imaginable sort. And what this did was give Himmler a tool to be able to present himself uh, and his his sort of closed system that he created in Bavaria as a model for the way that the concentration camp system and the broader political policing system should be integrated across the rest of Germany. This kind of approach is mimicking law and order while preserving the violence. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it all relies on this sort of perverse ability of Himmler to, to present his concentration of power as the only way to avoid the abuses that his own subordinates were responsible for. So he present, he was both the commandant of the Bavarian political police as well as the head of the SS. And the SS were the men who were responsible for guarding the camp at Dachau. Now, under this kind of dual function as head of political police and head of the SS, he would say, well, you have to give me control of the concentration camp system because, and, and you have to give the concentration camp system to the SS because on the one hand it works, but on the other hand, because I am both in charge of the political police, I know who to put in the camp, but because I'm in charge of the SS, I'm the only person who has the authority to discipline the guards. So if you give control of this sort of integrated system of political policing and arbitrary detention to, to my organization, to me and to my organization, we can be the ones who can run it in a responsible, respectable, and most importantly, regulated way. And this was a compelling, like, it's a total lie right? The violence is just as bad at, and becomes institutionalized under Himmler. But what ends up happening is 
that in the face of all of these scandals of uh, auxiliary office or auxiliary stormtroopers and SS members acting as camp guards, beating people to death and stories of the abuses coming out across the country, this presents a compelling argument to, to concentrate this power in Himmler's hands. So having taken control of the camp system and with his model camp at Dachau under Eicha, Himmler could begin to build a nationwide integrated system of repression that would grow into the concentration camp system that has become so terribly infamous. And on that note, we draw this installment of the Third Reich History Podcast to a close. Chris and I would just like to take a moment to thank everybody who's subscribed to the series. We have just passed our 500th subscriber, which is a huge number compared to what we were expecting when we started everything a year ago. And quite gratifying to know that there are people out there who appreciate learning about what we both feel is a, an important issue. We do rely on you to expand that audience and to reach more people. And if you are listening and have not subscribed, please do consider it. Just being subscribed raises the podcast's exposure and helps other people who are looking to learn more about this subject and history more generally discover the content. We hope that you enjoy this series on the concentration camps and are, of course, always interested to hear back from you with any comments, suggestions, or requests. So please don't hesitate to get in touch. For now, though, we'd like to thank you for joining us and hope to see you next time. Until then.